Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. General Electric shocking markets today, ousting John Flannery after just a year of his tenure there as chief executive and replacing him with a renowned turnaround expert. Shares surging the most in nine years, up more than 12%. The question is, what is this new CEO going to do and will it be enough to fix a situation that seems to be growing increasingly urgent? Karen Eubelhart joining us now, senior industrials analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Karen, thank you so much for being here. It seems like this move is almost one of desperation saying we need to fix something and we need to fix something fast. I think it is. I don't think this was a, a, a plan, a, you know, a plan. They put Larry on the board, uh, Larry Culp on the board. Uh, I think, you know, as part, partially credibility, partially because he's a great operating guy and they, and they, he's they the new CEO that, now, the new CEO. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think this was, as they just had to get something done quickly. And he's a very good operator. He has a lot of credibility on the street because of his history. And I just felt, I just think they gave up on Flannery. What, uh, if you got to, if let's say Larry Cope called Karen Eubelhart <laughs> and said, tell me based on your experience covering GE, what do you think is the most important thing I should focus on right now? Well, clearly it's it's power, but um, I was a little disturbed um, that he that Flannery was going to uh, make power the largest business in GE with an operating margin goal of ten percent. Uh, you know that is not a solid plan. Um, and I why think, not? Uh, you know, a ten percent operating margin company. You need a much higher. You know, uh, that's not going to please shareholders. Um, Larry Culp came in. Danaher was at ten percent. It was a twenty three percent EBITDA margin when he left. I mean. Uh, you know, so I said that is not going to be enough. Uh, he's got to shrink power quickly. Um, I think he's got to sell off pieces of power. And, and that's what his, his iterative process, Danaher Business Systems, does get down to the granular level. And I think he's going to look at that, not as one business, but as many businesses, try to stop the bleeding as much as he can there. I think he may rethink some of those asset sales, like healthcare, uh, you know, and because uh, that is a good business uh, that they were getting rid of because they needed cash. Um, I think he'll be able to uh, pull cash out of the different businesses. There's a lot of fat at GE, and and uh, Danaher Business Systems helped solve some of those problems. So. so, one thing that we were talking about earlier is that even though you're seeing that rally in GE's shares, you're not seeing a commensurate rally in the company's bonds, and they have a lot of them. They have uh, more than 112 billion dollars of debt. Uh, you're not seeing the same pop. I'm just wondering, a much smaller General Electric, how will they right size their debt portfolio right now? That's massive. Uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's a good question. He's got to generate, uh, you know, cash to be able to, you know, uh, retire it. And, uh, that's going to be his number one priority. I think, uh, you think that his number one priority is going to be dealing with the the massive amount of debt while also shrinking the company and making sure that it revives it. Yes. And, and the rate, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the credit guy, of course, but, but, uh, the rating was always vulnerable and now they just took $23 billion in uh, goodwill, uh, you know, wrote down, uh, the asset value of the company quite substantially. So that should, have some implications too, although that's a good thing, I think. Uh, is uh, is it a job that Larry Culp will find 
a little easier because he is not a GE veteran? Well, I think the fresh look, it'll make it easier for him to take, you know, take some, you know, bigger actions. One of the negatives against Flannery was, yes, he was a fresh, um, you know, uh, new CEO, but he was GE generated, if you will. And so this gives him a, a, a chance. I think the one thing that's most interesting is he was a builder of a business, right? And now he's got to be a deconstructor of a very large business. So um, it's going to be a different kind of challenge, I think. One thing I'm struck by is that GE is tasked with shrinking dramatically and quickly at a time when they're increasing trade tensions between the U.S. and China. How does that affect the valuations that they're going to be able to realize when they do try to go and sell quickly? That's that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of their businesses, like the healthcare business, for example, a lot of the businesses are producing local you know, they're operating locally. Um, and you haven't really seen multiples come down that much in M&A uh, so, um, so far with the trade tension. So I don't, wouldn't put that on the top of the list of concerns. The uh, potential liabilities that GE still faces because of payouts having to do with uh, pensions and so on, what can you tell us there? The... Long t- the the pension, you know, hey, he, they're going to get lucky a little bit on the pension because interest rates are going up, and 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 they already have lowered the pension somewhat as a result of that, and some cash they put in, they're putting six billion dollars into it. Uh, that's going to be less of a problem. I think the concern is what else is in that black hole, like the long term do- liability that no one expected, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. So I think that's the concern. Like, what else is in that GE credit? Um. I think pension. They're chipping away at it, and they're going to get lucky uh, with where interest rates are, are going and are expected to go. Just 20 seconds. I'm just wondering, how does it affect GE that they're going to basically have forced sales? Does that reduce the prices that people will be willing to offer them? I uh, Well, you know, so far what they've sold, they actually did a little bit better than expected on almost all of them. Um, it's a hot market for, for, for M&A, so um, I don't think they'll they'll do something in desperation. He's a methodical guy. It's going to be interesting because he has to move fast, but he also doesn't want to make, you know, mistakes. It's, it's, it's not an easy challenge. I mean, right now the pop is, you know, everyone's excited about him, but it's going to be an uphill battle for him too. Well, indeed, uh, looking at the shares of General Electric, they are higher right now by more than 12%. Our thanks to Karen Ubelhart, Senior Analyst for Machinery and All Things GE at Bloomberg Intelligence. Last week was dominated by the Brett Kavanaugh hearings where he addressed some allegations of sexual misconduct when he was in high school. Joining us now is Ramesh Panuro, senior editor of the National Review, also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. I am so glad that you're with us, Ramesh, because you've been supporting Brett Kavanaugh and we've had people on who have sort of uh, been very critical of his performance last week. What was your impression, not of the allegations of sexual misconduct, but of his actual Portment in front of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee? I think he acted like somebody who believes he's innocent and is genuinely outraged by the allegations against him and showed the kind of righteous indignation um, that somebody in that situation would expect. The thing is, guilty people also often have the same affect 
uh, and we can't really infer something one way or the other from just the way he comported himself. Well, but but putting aside the sexual allegations altogether, I guess that there's one question, especially because he brought up, you know, sort of very partisan comments about the Democratic plot against him. And because he, you know, was cutting off senators, people are saying that that shows a lack of respect of procedure that's sort of important for the judicial system. So I guess I'm wondering what your sense is of that. Yes. So people have been saying, you know, he lacks a judicial temperament and even saying that he's he disqualified himself for the job just by his behavior. And I think that, look, he's been on the he's been on an important court for more than a decade now. And the judicial temperament that one is seeking is the, is the temperament of a person as a judge, not as a quasi defendant, which is what he is in this instance. You know, look, judges are asked to recuse themselves when their personal interests are on the line. This is a case where he is being accused of very, very serious offenses. And and I think it would be foolish to expect him to be sort of weighing the charges against him the way a judge would be weighing the charges against somebody else. Ramesh, do you believe that if confirmed, Judge Kavanaugh would make a good justice of the Supreme Court? I do. I think he is extremely well qualified, has been a solid judge on the D.C. Circuit. Um, you know, I, the, the real question in my mind uh, has been uh, whether we would get evidence which suggested that he was guilty of um, some of these very serious offenses that have been charged against him. And if that were the case, then I would say he would be disqualified. But, A, I don't think that that evidence has materialized, and B, I think absent such evidence, um, he is an extraordinarily well-qualified nominee to the Supreme Court. Do you believe that Merrick Garland would have made a good justice of the Supreme Court? I do. I think that he would have been, at you know, a perfectly well-qualified nominee, um, e- easily um, of the same caliber as Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, and so forth, and and would have very likely voted with them the vast majority of the time. So given that, do you in any way sort of begrudge the political nature of what these hearings have become because of that situation? I, I certainly understand many of the passions that Senate Democrats have brought to this, which are not limited to anger over the Garland situation, but also to their genuine belief in many cases in uh, Kavanaugh's guilt of these charges and their passion over issues like Roe v. Wade. Um, when it comes to specifically the Garland situation, I think, look, the Senate, Senate Democrats are perfectly within their rights if they wish to not move ahead on the Kavanaugh nomination, if they wish to vote him down. Um, if they wish to refuse to meet him the way that Republicans refuse to meet even with um, Merrick Garland. Uh, but, of course, you know, look, if you believe that what the way they're acting <clears throat> with respect to these charges is unjustified, I think it's very different to assassinate a man's character. Um, that didn't happen with Judge Garland, um, which is a good thing. Uh, and I do believe that uh, that there has been some reckless behavior with respect 
to Judge Kavanaugh. Wait, hold on a second. Reckless behavior. I want to home in on that because Uh, uh, what exactly are you talking about considering the fact that it seemed like it was only that a Washington Post reporter reached out to uh, Christine Ford that she came forward with her story and otherwise there was sort of she asked for for privacy. She didn't want these made public, these allegations. Well, there are a couple things. First of all, so how did the Washington Post get tipped off in the first place to uh, reach out? Uh, and, you know, if you look, listen to um, not just the Post, but the Intercept reporter, um, it, he's ruled out pretty much everybody but a Democratic congresswoman, Anna Eshoo. But beyond that, you've got Democratic senators who are saying, um, in, and said in advance, and I, okay, let me, let me back up a second. I think it would have been. I think it was wrong for people to prejudge on either side of this issue. And some yeah. Republicans said before they heard either of them, they were still with Kavanaugh. And some Democratic senators said before they heard either of them, they believed he was guilty. Right. That's what Senator Blumenthal said, for example. So Senator Hirono basically said the entire male sex should shut up about well, all of this. Right. Okay. So this is incredibly emotionally charged on all sides, both from a political perspective as well as just an emotional perspective. I'm wondering from from your point of view as a judicial expert, someone who's been following the courts for your lifetime, I'm just wondering how this whole process will affect the credibility of the Supreme Court going forward. Well, it is certainly not the kind of thing that is going to raise public esteem for the courts. Uh, and I suspect that there's not a single justice of the Supreme Court, from Sonia Sotomayor on the left to Clarence Thomas on the right, who looked at the spectacle in the Senate over the last week and said, you know, we really need to bring cameras into our courtroom. Um, but the emotions of the moment do often pass. So there, there were a lot of emotions on both sides surrounding the Clarence Thomas confirmation in 1991. Uh, You know, admittedly, those were less serious charges at that time. And basically, that didn't affect the long-run public sentiment toward the court. Um, So I think we have to get a little bit of distance from these events before we figure that out. All right, we're going to leave it there, but thanks very much for being with us. Uh, Ramesh Panuru is a senior editor at the National Review and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist speaking on the uh, ongoing, uh, I guess, uh, investigation into Brett Kavanaugh and the allegations of sexual assault and the uh, potential for Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court to go to the full Senate for a vote. We are awaiting comments from President Trump, who will be speaking about the renegotiated NAFTA agreements in the Rose Garden at the White House, which will uh, occur momentarily. In the meantime, I want to bring in Josh Galou. He is White House editor for Bloomberg. Josh, what are we expecting to hear from President Trump right now? Well, we're, I think we're expecting to uh, hear about what a great achievement this was. Uh, you know, he's been putting this up. Uh, it's a, he's gotten a lot of criticism for his stance on NAFTA, and uh, there were a lot of doubts that anything would come through, and he's going to portray this as a huge victory, even though uh, really many of the revisions they're actually making are quite modest. So it's unclear what this means for him politically, but he's going to try and make the most of it for sure. 
Uh, Josh, part of the deal has to do with Canada's dairy market for U.S. farmers, correct? That's right. That's been a major sticking point in the negotiations for uh, for some time. And and President Trump, on his uh, typical stump, piece, stump speeches, will uh, go out and talk about 300 uh, percent that that uh, you know American product, uh, American dairy products in Canada are 300 percent more expensive due to tariffs, uh, and calling it very unfair. You know, he is the the farmers are really a group that's been you know, stuck in the middle of all this, his trade policy. Um, and they've been targeted by China with uh, retaliatory tariffs. And uh, he really needed to do something here to reach out to people who are really his core constituency. All right. So, Josh, what I would love to hear from you is what the shakeout is from the analysts that have been parsing through the details since they were released of this renegotiated agreement. Do people think that it will increase production, even at the margins in the U.S., and will increase wages? Do they think that it will shift more production elsewhere? What's the what's sort of the breakdown here? Well, I th- actually, I think the, the jury is still out on that. We, uh, it's a bit early to say, and I think you're, it's right now you're going to have to tease apart what we're, what's, uh, what's an analysis and what's more of a political thing, because right now in Washington, the president's going to put as tough as uh, hard a political spin on it as he can. Um, these are, these are things he's been, you know, Democrats have tried to rake him over the coals on these and, uh, even many, uh, people in his own party have been unsupportive of his stance. So, uh, it's likely that as with most or any disruption to a trade agreement, there are going to be winners and losers. And, um, we're going to have to see how that shakes out. But the analysis that I've seen so far is not that he has uh, achieved some major victory uh, here for the for for U.S. exporters. Josh, just to continue the political theme, this pact or treaty would have to be approved by the U.S. Congress. That's right, and um, you know it's unclear. The I think most of Congress wanted some kind of deal. You know, I don't I don't know if left to Congress that uh, there would have been much of a disruption to. So um, I don't know that there's going to be a huge bar for that to happen, but uh, we'll see. You never it's if there's one thing that's unpredictable here, it's which way Congress is going to go on any given issue right now. You know, one question is how much political capital was spent or uh, exhausted during this process? What is the relationship between the U.S. and Canada emerging from this renegotiation? That's a great question, and it's really hard to uh, handicap because, yes, there it, it, this was a cause for a pretty significant rift between um, President Trump and Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada, and an unusual one, right? This is a longtime ally of the United States, neighbor. Uh, you know, there's never really been any major. Uh, issue with Canada, and suddenly it became quite heated and a little bit nasty. Um, If you, you know, if you think about this in the larger context of how Trump deals with other leaders in general, um, you know, on the one hand, and, and other politicians, quite frankly, you know, he, when he is in some sort of negotiation, he will go all out insult them, <laughs> you know, like a bare knuckle fight. 
but then he'll turn around and say like, oh, I, I love Justin Trudeau or, you know, he hasn't done that yet, but um, he does that with uh, President Xi of China. He's done it with political foes where they were at each other's throats during a campaign and then afterwards they've mended fences and worked together, you know, so um, he plays it both ways and it's hard to know how lasting any grudge will be. Well, uh, Josh uh, Galou, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, just I know you're going to be uh, listening to the president's uh, comments. We are awaiting President Donald Trump uh, walking out into the uh, Rose Garden in yeah. Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.